Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's my great pleasure as the Dean of the Graduate Division, I'm Marianne Mason, to introduce the Hitchcock Lecturers, and then I will let Professor Slimes introduce our distinguished guest and uh, lecturer today, Professor Michael Marmot. Um, I need to tell you about the Hitchcock Lectures because this man was so forethoughtful, it has allowed us to bring incredibly long list of distinguished scientists to Berkeley. Uh, If you look at the end of your your brochure, you'll see a list of who's who, not just in science, in the intellectual world, an incredible, incredible array. And we're very, very happy to add Sir Michael Marmot to the list. But as part of the terms of the bequest, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock. The Hitchcock Endowment was established from a bequest made by Dr. Charles M. Hitchcock in 1885 to institute a professorship at the University of California. Dr. Hitchcock was a physician in the United States Army Medical Corps. After serving at West Point on the Canadian frontier in the Indian Territory and in Mexico, he took up residence in San Francisco in 1851 as medical director for the Pacific Coast. Two years later, he resigned his commission and established a private practice in the city, which was then bustling with the activity generated by the influx of gold seekers. He must have had a pretty exciting life, first the Indian Territory and then San Francisco and the gold rush. His daughter, Lily, grew up in San Francisco and took great interest in the volunteer fire companies, becoming the mascot and later an honorary member of the Knickerbocker Engine Company Number no. 5. At the end of her life, Lily donated funds to erect Coit Tower on Telegraph Hill, a popular landmark, in memory of the volunteer firefighters of the 1850s and 1860s. Because both Lily and her mother, Martha, were ardent Confederate sympathizers, this does get worse, Dr. Hitchcock arranged to have them spend part of the Civil War period in Paris. Before the war's end, they returned to San Francisco, and Mitz Hitchcock quickly became one of the bells of the day. She married Benjamin Howard Coit in 1868, and their San Francisco home became a meeting place for those who were actively building the state. At Larkmead, their country resident near St. Helena, Mr. and Mrs. Coit entertained many distinguished intellectual figures, including Professor Joseph LeConte of the University of California, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Joaquin Miller. In 1903, following several tragic experiences, including the deaths in 1886 of both her father and her husband, Mrs. Coit returned to Europe, where she lived for more than 20 years. Much of the time she resided in Paris, but she also traveled to Africa and made many trips around the world. In 1924, she returned to San Francisco, where she spent the last five years. In 1930, through a generous bequest from Mrs. Coit, the Hitchcock Endowment Fund was enlarged considerably, allowing the University to liberalize the terms of the professorship and to expend the period of residence of its holders. It's become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California, sustaining and encouraging recognition of the highest distinction in scholarly thought and achievement. And I think that Lily Coit would be very happy to be here today. So let me welcome first Professor Leonard Syme, who introduced Michael Michaels. long walk to get up here. 
I first heard of Michael when I was giving a lecture in New Zealand in 1970. I was talking about the work we were doing in social epidemiology at Berkeley, and this man came up to me and said, you fellas really do that stuff? I said, yeah. He said, you know, we've got this medical student at Sydney who's driving us crazy. He's the best student in the class, but he questions everything. He's really making our lives a misery, and what he really wants to do is the kind of thing you were talking about at Berkeley. Would you take him if we gave him a fellowship? I said, sure. I thought it was a, one of these conversations, but it turned out the next year, here with this troublemaker came, and uh, he got his master's of public health at Berkeley, and then did a doctoral dissertation on the Japanese migration from Japan to Hawaii to California, which the papers which he published on that stand as classics uh, today. Uh, his wife, Alexi, was here with him, and she subsequently got a PhD in architecture from Berkeley. Then he went to London to make trouble. Uh, he was professor of epidemiology and public health at University College London School of Medicine and uh, is director of the Center for Health and Society, uh, where his main focus over the years has been on the underserved, on inequality, on injustice, and uh, whenever he can uh, raise difficulties and challenge the status quo, he does. One example of this work that you'll be hearing more about is we all know in public health and we've known forever that people lower down in social class have the highest rates of all diseases and afflictions. That's, that's well known. But for the last, up to the last 10 years or so, we've really done nothing about that. Uh, it's been an overwhelming problem because people at the bottom are poor, and they have poor education, and bad housing, and bad medical care, and bad nutrition, and bad jobs, and you know the list as well as I. And it's been impossible to disentangle all of these factors to try to figure out what can we do about this. Uh, Michael then began his study on British civil servants that has changed everything. The world is no longer the same. The issue of the underserved and of people in lower positions has now become a focus uh, of the Canadian government, the British government in Australia, the United States. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation now has established a major program in this area, as has the NIH, as has the Canadian government. It's really, his work has really caused a fundamental change in this incredibly important topic. Uh, he's been honored for this work by serving as a consultant in the Philippines and China and Pakistan and Poland and other places in the world. But I think the, the one of the landmarks in this is here's this guy who's doing nothing but making trouble and the most conservative medical group I think in the world, the Medical Research Council of England, gives him a lifetime research professorship. And then in the year 2000, the Queen knights him. And to cap off that year 2000, the School of Public Health at Berkeley named him Alumnus of the Year. So here we have this troublemaker who is being recognized and honored all around the world by everyone. And the challenge is, what is a guy who has been making trouble all this time, what do you do then when everybody gives you awards? And I think that's going to be the topic of his lecture. My guess is it'll be interesting to see how he deals with all this. It's a real honor and a real pleasure to introduce you, Michael. It's all yours. Thank you. Hearing Len's introduction, 
made me think of Mayor Teddy Colick of Jerusalem when he was on a visit to London and he was giving his third speech that day and someone said to him, Teddy, you're an old man. What are you doing going around giving all these speeches? He said, I like the introductions. (laughs) It was worth coming a long way for that introduction. Len, thank you. Uh, My first point, of course, is to thank the Hitchcock Committee um, for their uh, foresight. Uh, I got, by the time I got three of these in the post, I thought I'd better show it. Um, In fact, I'm not going to talk simply as an epidemiologist. Uh, Epidemiologists, of course, are concerned with population rates of disease, Uh, but the problem that I'm seeking to understand needs more techniques simply than those of epidemiology. And the story that I want to tell you over these next, this lecture and tomorrow, uh, began, as Len said, really in Berkeley, uh, but then when I moved back to the UK and started these studies of civil servants, and known as the Whitehall Studies. And in the early days of these studies, my wife's mother, who is not, I hasten to add, the mother-in-law of low humour, but was an intelligent, insightful woman, and asked, what are you working on? What are you doing research on? And I told her I was trying to understand why low-grade civil servants had higher rates of heart disease than high-grade. And she looked troubled. She was thinking, my daughter's choice of husband seemed like a bright boy, except for his interest in research. How am I going to explain to him that he's got it upside down? Everybody knows that people in high-status jobs have more stress. Everybody knows that stress causes heart disease. How can he be telling me that people in low-status jobs have more heart disease? Well, that's exactly what I was telling her. Uh, This picture of three different civil servants, uh, the the high-grade administrators, uh, the middle grades, and the low grades. And indeed, it is the people at the bottom who have more heart disease than those at the top. But not just more heart disease. And this was the observation from the first Whitehall study that got us going. Uh, This is all-cause mortality. And one is the average of the whole population. And at the younger age of death, the administrators, the top grades, had about half the mortality of the average, and the bottom grades, the messengers, the doorkeepers, had about twice the average of the mortality. Now, that was already some challenge at the time to conventional wisdom, particularly about heart disease, but the thing that's kept us going in research terms for the last more than two decades was the fact that it was a social gradient, hence the title of my lecture, Life and Death on the Social Gradient. It wasn't just that people at the bottom had more disease than people at the top, a fourfold difference, but it was a gradient. These people, the administrators who are below the top level, the professional and executive grades, had lower than average mortality, but higher than the ones above them, and so on. And that gradient continues to the older stage. The relative differences get a bit less, but in fact the absolute differences are bigger because mortality rises with age. And when I first observed this, it seemed to me that um, a British administrator was the end point of Darwinian evolution, 
Um, in fact, you could say that a British administrator is the perfect biological specimen. Uh, a non-smoking administrator is immortal, um, which perhaps explains some of our problems. Um, and, oops, sorry, could you take that off for a moment? Um, in thinking about this uh, problem, I was uh, asked to address uh, a group of civil servants uh, at an annual conference between permanent secretaries, who are the, the mandarins, the top level, and chief executives of local government. They have this annual meeting at the Civil Service Training College, and on the Friday night after dinner, they have some after-dinner entertainment, and I was the after-dinner entertainment to talk about the Whitehall studies. Now, the first thing to say is that the chief executives of local government uh, had degrees from universities like Leicester, Sheffield, Nottingham, Manchester, Liverpool, and the civil servants at the top, the permanent secretaries, had degrees from Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, clear stratification. Anyway, at dinner, because I was the guest speaker, I was sitting next to the head of the home civil service, the Mandarin's Mandarin, I'll call him Alpha, and... Uh, talking to Alpha over dinner, and I was talking about our studies, and he volunteered the intelligence that, as he said, I've never had a problem. I was waiting for him to finish the sentence. <laughs> like, you know, I've never had a problem with which I could not cope. And I was thinking, I have six problems every morning before breakfast, and He's right at everything, at the centre of everything thrown at government. 600,000 people report to him, and if the Prime Minister has a problem, he has a problem. And he says he'd never had a problem. Well, I was talking about this remarkable insight, or lack of insight on his part, uh, in the bar afterwards, after my talk, with some of the other senior civil servants, and they said, that's Alpha, reached the top without touching the sides. And now if I could have the, if I could have the slide back on. So the, the problem I'm trying to understand is why these people at different levels of the hierarchy have different rates of disease. This will be the structure of my lecture today, and you don't need to memorize this because I'll come back to it. Um, but the first point is that everybody's born equal, but some are more equal than others. Um, and then I want to go through this. If you stay the course and decide to come tomorrow, but today I'm going to pose a question. Tomorrow, I hope, I'm going to try and give an answer to that question. Um, I'm going to talk about different approaches to equality. Uh, what do we want equality of? Um, what might explain how relative position and health are related? How does it operate? The sociobiological translation, how it translates into biology and then with a rousing call, I shall end and say how we should improve society. But to come back to today, some are more equal than others. <clears throat> the first question that I always get asked about Whitehall, the Whitehall study is, well, yes, that's civil servants, but perhaps they're atypical. Uh, what do they know about the real world? This is an American study that, at least when it began, was a, a representative sample of the U.S. population, the panel study of income dynamics, and these are households, uh, people classified according to household income in 1993 dollars. 
and less than seventy thousand. Uh, sorry, more than seventy thousand dollars, and so on down to less than fifteen thousand. And you can see this stepwise relation, a gradient. The lower the income, the higher the the mortality. Much of that is related to education because adjusting for education reduces that. But there is some left over even after adjusting for education. And the point to hammer home, as with Whitehall, yes, it's true that the, the poorest people, those with less than $15,000 household income, have the highest mortality, 3.9 times uh, that of the highest. But there are not very many of them. It was about 7.5% of households. Look at this group, where about a third of households are in the thirty dollars to $50,000 range and 1.6 times the mortality of the best-off group. So it's bad to be at the bottom, but it's not so terrific to be just in the middle either. And in terms of the problem of inequality, not just the problem of poverty, more of the problem of inequality is in the middle because that's where all the people are. So a lot of people with a small increase in risk account for more excess deaths than a small number of people with a large increase in risk. Now, I've been thinking a lot and researching a lot about the social gradient within societies, but at the same time we've been interested, and this plays, I think, an important part in our causal explanations, in what's been going on uh, in different countries in Europe. And there's been a widening gap. Here we've taken life expectancy at age 15 for men, 1970 to 97. And this is, these are the countries of what's now the European Union, starting in 1970 and comparing them with the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, the former communist countries of Europe. And now I've taken life expectancy at 15 because infant mortality was not high in Central and Eastern Europe. And infant mortality, of course, is the most exquisite uh, most exquisitely sensitive indicator of poverty, health indicator of poverty, but infant mortality was not high. So I've taken life expectancy at 15, and you can see in 1970 there was about one year gap in life expectancy between the West and the East, the communist countries and the democratic West. And then over the next two decades, life expectancy increased year on year in the countries of Western Europe and actually declined in the communist countries of Central and Eastern Europe. For the Soviet Union, life expectancy was four years lower. Uh, and this improvement in life expectancy, some attribute to the Gorbachev anti-alcohol reforms, uh, I'm somewhat skeptical, but at this time people did in fact reportedly uh, have less alcohol. And then there was this remarkable drop in life expectancy. I think it was at about this point, uh, after the collapse of communism, that somebody got up in the Russian Duma, the Russian parliament, and said, my friends, yesterday we stood on the edge of an abyss, and today we have taken a great step forward. Um, I, I hasten to add that it's not only uh, Russian politicians who sometimes get their words wrong. Uh, former British Prime Minister John Major, uh, at a time when he was feeling particularly beleaguered, he said, we'll do what we always do when we have our backs to the wall. We'll turn round and fight. <laughs> <laughs> mm. While... Uh, 
none, none doubted his sincerity. Some of us, some of us had some questions about the mechanics of this manoeuvre. Um, so there was this absolutely dramatic drop in life expectancy. So by the end of this period, there was a 10-year gap in life expectancy between West and East. For women, we see the same sort of picture, um, but the gap is six years, not ten years. One of the reasons I'm sceptical about uh, the alcohol reforms being responsible for what we see with the Russian men is that the women don't booze like the men do, (coughs) and they show the same pattern, although not to the same extent. And as the Russians say to us, uh, we had the heavy yoke of communism. The only thing worse than communism was post-communism. In the 10 years, in the 10 years from the collapse of communism, 1989 to 1999, there was an estimated 4 million excess deaths. In the great famines in the 20s and 30s, there was about 7 million excess deaths. So what's happened in Russia over that decade is of the same order of magnitude as the great famine. Are we dealing with a problem of them and us? What do I mean by this? I've been involved in trying uh, to advise government as to what they can do on this problem of inequalities in health. And I talk about the social gradient in health. I say that it's a gradient. And it goes in linear and comes back binary. They say, they look at the data and they say, yes, there's a gradient. And then it comes back, they talk about poverty. It's like uh, George Pickering used to say, doctors can count up to two. You know, you've got it or you haven't got it. Well, we deal, when we deal with governments, it's the same way. They can deal with the poverty problem. They can understand poverty. And nobody thinks poverty is a particularly good thing. They may not want to do much about it, but nobody thinks it's a particularly good thing. But a lot of people think inequality is a good thing. We've had governments uh, in Britain and you have in the United States who've thought inequality was a fine thing. Uh, And in fact, it was an article of economic policy to promote inequality. So if it's them and us, the poor and the non-poor, that's one thing. But if it's a gradient, it's something else. Now, if we look at life expectancy in the US, uh, life expectancy at birth by race and sex, white and black, Um, 74 for white men, 67 for black men, 79.9, 80 for white women, 75 for black women. And there is a tendency to say, well, it's them and us, uh, and that's the problem. And I think most people would now think that uh, the black-white differences are largely socioeconomic in origin, uh, but it's still, it's an underclass, it's them and it's us, is the way people tend to think about it. I think that's mistaken. Uh, I've been arguing it's a gradient when we look at civil servants or we look at the panel study of income dynamics. We look at life expectancy for U.S. whites and then poor whites, U.S. blacks, and then poor blacks. Now, I think it's as well just to tell you what this shows. Life expectancy for U.S. whites, this is the probability of survival from age 15 to 65. The average for U.S. whites is about 77%. A 15-year-old has about a 77% chance of getting to 65. For blacks living in poor communities in New York City, uh, the chance is one-third. Only 33% 
Every time I look at these figures, my blood runs cold. This has to be thought of, I suppose, as an urban underclass. But even that, I would argue, is one end of the spectrum. That we do much better to try and understand this as the bottom of a gradient rather than simply them and us, the haves and the have-nots. And Anna D.S. Rue's recent study um, looking at neighbourhoods, the poverty of neighbourhoods, showing, and this is for African Americans, the worse off the neighbourhood, the higher the risk of coronary disease, and also individual income, the lower the individual income. And again, it's a stepwise function. So in general, you're worse off to be in a poor neighbourhood and have low income, but in general, it's a gradient. It's not simply those at the bottom. So I think them and us is really not a very helpful way to look at it. In fact, it's our problem. It's all of us. And going back to Britain, uh, and this is looking at areas, and these are areas uh, divided into twentieths, I can't even say that, five centiles, uh, divided into twentieths on a deprivation score. And looking at um, life expectancy or mortality by deprivation in males and in females. And it really is quite remarkable that all the way from the least deprived, the wealthiest, to the most deprived, um, it's a stepwise function all the way. It's not simply that people in the most deprived areas are worst off, but it goes all the way to the, the very top of the scale. And there's some interaction between uh, level of deprivation and individual social class. These are areas of the country, regions of the country, and this is mortality for social class one. It varies very little by region of the country. But this is mortality for social class five, the bottom social class, and you can see it varies enormously. So in fact, there's a double jeopardy if you're individually of low socioeconomic status and living in a poor area, you're worse off. And the question, which is better, to be poor living in a rich area or poor living in a poor area? Absolutely no question. You're worse off to be poor in a poor area. So I've been dealing with the gradient and trying to think how we're going to understand it seems to me that we need to recognize that we see social gradients in animals as well, in non-human primates. Uh, and not only are there differences in status, um, but those differences in status translates into differences in disease. You feed them a constant diet, the subordinate animals develop more atherosclerosis. Carol Shively's studies um, this is the degree of atherosclerosis in males, and this is uh, female monkeys where they've had their ovaries removed. And then you look at subordinate females and dominant females, and being subordinate is as bad for the arteries as having ovaries removed. So there is this dramatic difference. And it seems to me this is really quite important because a lot of the arguments one gets uh, when one's trying to understand the gradient is, well, it must be inadequacies of medical care. Well, I think it's probably true that these monkeys have rather shocking degree of medical care, but so do these. Uh, then people say it must be smoking. 
I don't think any of these monkeys smoke. Well, the high-status people read the New York Times science page and they figure out what to do. Well, none of these monkeys reads the New York Times science page, good as it is. (laughs) And it's not simply that the the genetic ones, the genetically inferior ones are the subordinate ones and the genetically superior are the dominant ones, because when they mix them up, when they actually mix them up into different groups, they take subordinate monkeys from different troops and then put them together and then they form into new hierarchies and the ones who end up on top uh, have less atherosclerosis and similarly when they take the dominant monkeys when they mix them up. This is for females. Interestingly, it's different for males. When they put, there's the stable situation, when they mix them up, they put the dominant monkeys I like to think of this as an academic heads of department meeting with these high-status monkeys jockeying for position, and it's really rather stressful having been there. Um, and in, but in fact, this can be, and we'll talk about that tomorrow, but this can be abolished by prior treatment with a, a beta-sympathetic blocker. It suggests it's related to the sympathetic pathway. Now, if monkeys show these hierarchies and apes show these hierarchies uh, and you might say to me why don't we give up and go home because if health follows a hierarchy and all societies of primates have hierarchies what are we going to do about it well societies have hierarchies but they also have cooperation And we are evolved to cooperate just as we may be evolved to have hierarchies. And in fact, we need to think of the balance between hierarchy and cooperation because I think that balance is really rather crucial for what happens in terms of the gradient in health. Nevertheless, people say egalitarianism has failed wherever it's been tried. one version of this is the poor are always with us. We're always going to have hierarchies, so what are you going to do about it? And what a silly area of policy to try and address uh, to reduce social hierarchies. Well, my answer to that is to say that there are two two types of changes that we need to look at. The first is changes over time, and let me illustrate that Um, with a study by Benjamin Seabohm Rountree uh, in the city of York published in 1901. Benjamin Seabohm Rountree was the son of Joseph Rountree and I don't know whether that means anything to you but uh, Joseph Rountree uh, was a most unusual man. Uh, He was a confectioner. He made chocolate. Uh, He was a Quaker and he was terribly concerned about poverty. Uh, he, like some of the other Quakers, Cadbury was also Quakers, uh, were very concerned about the quality of working conditions and the quality of lives of the people who worked in their factories. And in fact, we now have a foundation, the Joseph Rountree Foundation, whose main mission uh, is to look at the, the lot and status of the poor in Britain. His son, Benjamin Seabohm Rountree, like his father, ran the factory, ruined children's teeth by making chocolate, but was also concerned with the quality of the conditions of what he called the working class. And in York, he did this study of the poorest working class, the middle working class, and the highest working class. And this is infant mortality. These are deaths 
um, per thousand live births. And you can see about a quarter of children died in the first year in the poorest and 173 per thousand in the richest of the working class. And then he compared it with the servant-keeping class. So these are the richest people of York a century ago. And their infant mortality was 94 per thousand live births. So these were the richest people, 94. Just try and remember for about 15 seconds, 94 per thousand. If we look at infant mortality now, the richest is not 94, it's 3.7 per thousand. And the poorest, social class five, it's 8.1. Single mother's sole registration is 7.6. So the poorest people in Britain today have an infant mortality that is an order of magnitude less than the richest people 100 years ago. There is still a gradient. But to say the poor are always with us, what can we do about it? We've done volumes, we've done enormous amounts in that hundred years. And we did it not by necessarily abolishing gradients, but by improving the lot of everybody. If we look more recently, what I've tried to do here is construct a, um, a parade using metaphorical height. What I've done was I said, let's assume that height and life expectancy are correlated, and that metaphorical height will be a proxy for life expectancy. So in my figure here, the shorter people have the lowest life expectancy. So we conduct this parade in the 1960s, and here we have the unskilled manual, who have the who are the shortest, because they have the lowest life expectancy, the semi-skilled, the skilled manual, the class three non-manual, the, the clerks and shop assistants and so on, uh, the class two, the teachers, and the doctors and professionals. And it's a very clear gradient. Height is a very good proxy for life expectancy. Now, if we repeat this parade, have people enter my parade according to their metaphorical height, in the 1990s, it's really rather striking. The unskilled manual in the 90s have now got a greater metaphorical height than the professionals did 30 years earlier. I'm using height, I could, this could be life expectancy, um, class five to class one in the 1960s, and in the 1990s, the bottom people have greater life expectancy than the top people did 30 years earlier. Uh, so we can improve things for everybody. So to say the poor are always with us, uh, I think is rather too negative because today's worst off people might have better health than yesterday's best off and tomorrow they might have as good health as today's best off. So that's point one. Point two, though, is the gradient can change. The gradient in health, at least, can change. It is not a fixed property of a society. This is England and Wales data again. Class one and class five, a 5.5 year gap in life expectancy in the early 70s. 20 years later, the gap had increased to 9.5 years. And for women, uh, it had increased too, but the gap was smaller. It was 6.4 years for women. So over that 20-year period, the gap in life expectancy had increased to 9.5 years, which is absolutely enormous, so that the magnitude of the social gradient can increase. 
And for specific diseases, we see it. This is heart disease. When I began the Whitehall studies uh, in the 70s, this was the gradient. It was rather shallow, class one being the top, five the bottom. In 1979 to 83, a steeper gradient, 91 to 93, an even steeper gradient. And if we look at suicide mortality, uh, in the 70s, there was no gradient. It was high mortality in class 5, but no gradient. And it's quite possible that that uh, high mortality in class 5 could be due to reverse causation. It could be that people who are mentally ill were more likely to drift down socially and were more likely to commit suicide. And so the high suicide mortality in class 5 could be due to downward social drift. But we've seen over that 20-year period an evolution of a social gradient. And in fact, it was around this time uh, I was sitting on a, a government committee that was trying to monitor the progress in various health targets that had been set, and one of, which, one of which was to try and reduce suicide mortality. One of the problems that we were looking at was that suicide mortality in young men was going up. And there was hand ringing around the table, why is suicide mortality in young men going up uh, in the early 90s? And I said it could be unemployment, for example. You throw people on the scrap heap, they commit suicide. And the chairman of this committee said there's no link between unemployment and suicide next to gender item. I went up to him after the meeting and I said, what do you mean there's no link between unemployment and suicide? He said, well, it's not a one-to-one link. I commented, if there were, it would solve the unemployment problem. (laughs) And in Russia, one one of the things that's happened after the collapse of communism is increased... Uh, inequalities. This is higher education, lower education, uh, 1988 to 89, 93 to 94, and things, the the gap, um, the people of lower education have had a much steeper increase in mortality than people of higher education, and similarly with women. And we see the same phenomenon in the Czech Republic, increasing inequalities. Uh, So post- the collapse of communism, the social gradients got bigger. So the gradient can change. Everybody can get better or can get worse in the case of Central and Eastern Europe, and the magnitude of the social gradient in health can change. So in thinking about what we can do about the gradient, potentially there are two strategies. We can change the social gradient. Uh, Don Quixote tried that. Um, without much success. Uh, And it may be that there's not so much we can do about changing the social gradient, because if all primates, and we are primates, have social gradients, there's not much we can do about it. But we could actually change the link between social position and health if only we understood why that link exists. And that's really what the rest of what I want to talk about. But I do have to... Before I get on to that, just divert slightly to 
let Len Syam know that I actually learnt something at his feet in those uh, years in the early 1970s. The difference between trying to understand individual differences in disease and group differences. Let me illustrate. I looked in my local newspaper, the Hampstead and Highgate Express, recently, and I read a story about a woman who was driving her car. She was an old-age pensioner, and she was driving her car, and she mistook the accelerator for the brake, and she'd meant to put her foot on the brake. She put her foot on the accelerator, and to her ghastly horror, she trapped her friend against a wall, who was another old-age pensioner, and she killed this friend. A ghastly, horrible story, and the woman was so distraught that she, in turn, died a few months later. And so you read this horrible story and you think, how could this happen? And the family suffered, everybody suffered. And then I read another news item. A cyclist, and this was a bit close to home, I didn't like this one. A cyclist died, he was cycling, he was hit by a car, the man who was driving the car didn't have a license, was under the influence of drugs and alcohol, uh, was in fact an illegal immigrant, and etc., etc., and another ghastly story. So I could read my local newspaper every week, and there would be two or three items like that every week. And each one is unique. And the families suffer because of this terrible thing that shouldn't have happened. Then we look at the actual number of traffic deaths in Britain. 1994, 96, 98. This is too unlikely. I thought that I'd copied the figures out uh, wrongly. Um, at least they had the good grace to be, what's that, 16 fewer deaths in 1996, but then the same number again in 1998. So each traffic death is unique and causes great human suffering, and the chances of an old age pension of putting a foot on the accelerator instead of the brake, I mean, it's a unique experience, but there's the same number of those unique experiences every year, and they're two and a half times more likely to happen to men than women every year. And if we look internationally, Great Britain, um, Belgium, I wanted to look up Belgium because having caught taxis when I go to Brussels, it feels like it ought to be two and a half times higher than in Britain. Um, and the USA, that's 96, that's 98, uh, constant differences. So we think of each death being unique, um, but in fact there's a social rate of traffic deaths, and I use traffic deaths as the example because we talk about them as accidents, and yet there's a constant rate. There is a societal rate, and there's a societal rate of heart disease. We know that there will be about 150,000 deaths from heart disease in Britain this year because there were about 150,000 last year, slightly fewer because it's a long-term secular change. And we know that the rate will be higher in Hungary than in Britain this year because it was last year because there are societal rates of disease. And that's what we're trying to understand, the societal rate and the social group differences, not necessarily the individual differences. But we can change the societal rate, um, sticking with accidents. Um, this is from Australia, looking at two states, New South Wales and Victoria, and taking a baseline in 1970. 
And in the state of Victoria, in 1979, they introduced a package of measures to try and combat drink driving, including random breath tests. And what happened? The road fatalities dropped. They didn't introduce those measures to New South Wales until 1986. And the traffic fatalities dropped after they introduced those measures. So there is a societal rate, but we can change the societal rate by doing things, like in this case, random breath tests. And I want to do one more example while I'm trying to hammer home this theme of the societal rate being different from the individual differences. If we look at homicide in Chicago, this is the rate for women by age, and this is the rate for men. And this is the age of the perpetrator, but the age of the victim is identical. It's young men killing each other. Then we look at England and Wales, Identical. So you say there's something about being a young man, um, and if you focused on the individual, you'd look for the gene for aggression, or you'd take young men and inject them with testosterone antagonists to try and do something about this terrible thing. Now, let me superimpose the Chicago rate and the England and Wales rate. There's the Chicago rate, 900 per million, and there's the England and Wales rate, 30 per million. I can't divide 900 by 30 in a way that seems to make it sounds like it's 30-fold uh, difference, but that can't be right. A 30-fold difference. So we could focus on the individual differences. And in fact, I've got a friend in Chicago who's always going on at me for going on about group differences. He said, why don't you focus on why some individuals faced with adversity prosper and others don't? And I said, yeah, I guess that's a reasonable way to go. I know lots of people in Chicago who've never killed anybody. Um, they go for weeks on end without killing anybody at all. <laughs> I know some people in Chicago who go their whole lives without killing anybody, and maybe that's what we should focus on. Or alternatively, we can ask, why is the rate 30 times higher in Chicago than in England and Wales? It's a different question to asking, why do we get this peak in young men? And in fact, I think the correct way to think about it is why does the environment bring out this, this potential for young men to be aggressive? Explanations then. Um, interestingly, Sally McIntyre uh, brought this to our attention. Looking at 1910, the explanations for social inequalities, environmentalist, behavioral, hereditarian, very similar to the discussions we have today. If we look at explanations now, uh, the first thing that people say is it must be medical care. And part of my response to that is look at the apes, look at the monkeys. Um, but also my response is that in a civilized society, high quality medical care, equal access to high quality medical care uh, should be a prerequisite of living in a civilized society. The last thing you want when you get ill is not to have access to high quality medical care. So that the problem of inequality in health, we don't want to be compounded by a problem of inadequate access to medical care. But that's not the cause of the problem. We're dealing with differences in the incidence rates of disease, in the new occurrence of disease. It's an inadequate response to a problem, but not the cause of the problem in the first place. 
what about genes and selection? And I'll talk some more about these. But what about genes and selection? One version of the story would be that if you've got poor genetic stock, if you're from poor genetic stock, that leads to poor health and that leads to low socioeconomic status. Uh, it's usually economists uh, who have this model, in my experience, and they push it like crazy with absolutely no evidence to support it. They call it endogeneity. We call it reverse causation. Um, a different version of the model is that um, your genes determine your health and determine your socioeconomic status and that the link between socioeconomic status and health is spurious. Well, could this be true? I mean, one way it could work is if um, people with poor health uh, don't go up the, the social ladder as um, fast as the healthy ones. You'd get this social gradient. Well, let me take you back to this picture. Remember, uh, in a 30-year period, we had this dramatic improvement in health for everybody. So that if you were arguing that these people had their poor health because of their poor genes in the 1930s, in the 1960s, 30 years later, their health was better than the rich people. So you might say, oh yes, but it's their poor genes that relate to the fact that they have worse health than the rich people now. Well, okay, maybe. Um, but then why did the gradient change? Why did the magnitude of the social gradient change if it was just poor genes? Why do we get this change in the social gradient in a 30-year period? And we also know from birth cohort studies that it's in fact socioeconomic conditions precede poor health, not poor health preceding socioeconomic conditions. That's not to say genes are unimportant, but we need to get them in perspective. For example, and I was at a meeting recently when people were... Um, in fact, it was a meeting on heart disease in South Asians, uh, and people were saying, well, obesity is genetic, because twin studies show that obesity is 60 to 80% heritable. So if you do studies within Sweden of monozygotic and dizygotic twins, you can show that obesity is 60 to 80% heritable. But doing studies in India of Indians in India, the body mass index, the mean body mass index, body mass index is weight over height squared, uh, was 20. Studying people from the same part of India in the UK, their body mass index was 27 or 28. Translating that, uh, that's a difference of about 20 kilograms. So you could say for all intents and purposes, um, it's really environmental. So now we know that it's 60% genetic and it's 60% environmental, or maybe 80% environmental. Well, the percent variance depends on the circumstances. Uh, it shouldn't be thought of as genes versus environment. If you equalize the environment, all the variance will be genetic. If, under the assumption, it's not true, but under the assumption that Sweden provided a uniform social environment for everybody, then all the variation in Sweden would be genetic. If you equalize the environment, all the variation is genetic. If you have colossal environmental differences, then the genetic part is less important. 
So it's actually a meaningless concept to try and partial out the variance into how much is genetic and how much is environmental. We need to understand the insights of the human genome and how they interact with environmental circumstances. Now, in thinking about the societal explanations, there's been a, a so-called debate between materialist position and uh, psychosocial factors. Uh, the materialist structural explanation, there's a hard position, and Sally McIntyre again pointed this out. The hard position is that material and physical conditions are the complete explanation for the class gradient in health. The softer position is that physical and psychosocial features are associated with a class structure. So there are the physical circumstances, but there are also psychosocial factors. And my own model that I'll talk more about tomorrow is that we start here with a social structure, work and the social environment. Yes, we have material factors, but work and the social environment outside work relate to psychological factors in people, to health behaviours. It affects this rather important organ here, the brain, um, neuroendocrine and immune effects, pathophysiological changes and organ impairment, and that affects well-being, mortality and morbidity. This plays out on a substrate of genes, there are influences from early life, and there are important cultural influences. So if we ask, we've got this relation between social position and health, how does it operate? Well, I want to think about three different ways it could operate. Money, status, and power. Bob Frank says... Um, the question is, how important is money in all this? Well, if we look internationally, this um, famous figure now that was reproduced in the World Bank uh, Development Report, but originally due to Sam Preston, um, income per capita, 1991 international dollars, and each of these points represents a country. And this is life expectancy and income for selected countries. And you can see at low incomes, a small increase in income is associated with a steep increase in life expectancy. But then after you get to about a gross national product of $5,000 in 1991 international dollars, the relationship levels off and that a big increase in GNP is associated with only a rather shallow uh, increase in life expectancy. Now, the other thing you see is York in 1900 versus now, that the relation between income and uh, life expectancy changed over time. Things got better. But you see that it's really rather shallow relation up here with the rich countries. But remember, I showed you this from the panel study of income dynamics. Everybody was above that $5,000 mark, and yet you see this continuous gradient. Why should we see it? My own view is that it's not, it's not money that income is a marker of where you are in society. At the lower level, it is money. For a whole country, poor countries can't invest in infrastructure, don't have clean water, don't have sewage, inadequate nutrition. But above, above that threshold of absolute deprivation, income is a marker for where you are in the hierarchy. 
If we look at our Whitehall 2 study, our second study of civil servants, this is income levels, household income, and you can see that the higher the household income, the less likely are people to report themselves in poor health and the less likely are they to be depressed. And a similar gradient for women. But here we've looked at depression and poor self-rated health. So these are the people with low income compared with high income, two and a half times the risk of depression. But there we've adjusted for health at the baseline, the argument being that health might cause low income. And there is some evidence of that. But now here we've also adjusted for um, other measures, particularly their employment status and their employment grade and their education. And when we adjust for employment grade, employment status and education, there's really very little relation between income and depression or between income and health. In other words, the reason it looks that household income was related to poor health in the Whitehall 2 study is because income is related to where you are in the hierarchy. And where you are in the hierarchy is a potent predictor of poor health. And income added nothing over and above knowledge of education and grade of employment. And if you think that income is important, uh, what about this? Costa Rica, US black, median income in Costa Rica at purchasing power parity, so adjusting to the USA, 6,400, uh, US black, 26,500 median income. Life expectancy for men in Costa Rica, 75, US black, 66. Four times the income, nine years fewer life expectancy. I think that income poverty is a rather impoverished way to deal with the issue of poverty. Uh, income is only part of the story. The uh, blacks in the United States are not poor in some world meaning of poverty. Uh, they're poor by reference to what's going on in the society around them. So it's not income per se. And if we look at income inequality, we have the same sort of vexed question. These are data that people have been looking at in the United States where they've looked at states according to what they've called the median share of income. The higher you are here, the more egalitarian is the income distribution. The lower you are, the greater the income inequality. I wasn't... It's censoring me. It says I've gone too slowly. Um, is it? There you are. We'll show who's master. <laughs> don't, don't tempt fate. Um, and so these are states. And you can see this clear inverse association. The greater the income inequality, the higher the mortality. And it's a very clear association. Then some Canadians said, let's look at Canadian provinces. And they reported that there was no relation between income inequality and mortality in Canada. 
And my first response to this, um, Michael Wolfson was the senior author of this, my first response to this, what do you mean there's no relation? For all the Canadian provinces had more egalitarian distribution of income in general than the states of the USA, and they have lower mortality. So they're all clustered down the bottom. That's perfectly consistent with an association between income inequality and mortality. So Michael went back and looked at the data again, and he said, well, in this range, there's no relation in Canada, and there is a relation in the US. The point being, does income inequality matter per se? Should we be recommending more egalitarian distributions of income? Or is income inequality some marker for the social environment? And is the meaning of income inequality different in, ca in the USA than in Canada? And it might well be different. What an unequal income might mean in Canada with less physical segregation of poverty than in the United States uh, might be different. I want to finish today's lecture by just reflecting on this for a moment. Having said that I think that income by itself only matters if you're really at the bottom end, we need to think, are we dealing with relative differences or absolute differences uh, in trying to understand the gradient? And it is, of course, an important question because, as I said when thinking about the non-human primates, if all societies have gradients, if there are relative differences in all societies, what are we going to do about relative differences? On the other hand, I've just been arguing that I don't think it's absolute income is the story once you're above the threshold. Well, no matter how much you have, somebody might be there ahead of you. Um, I'll explain that one afterwards. <laughs> Uh, Nancy Adler at the University of California, San Francisco, um, developed this. It's called a ladder. And uh, we administered it to our civil servants, and we asked people to place themselves on the ladder. And where are you? People, by virtue of their jobs and their prestige and their income, uh, at various points in a hierarchy, and we asked people to place themselves on the ladder. And then we looked at their rankings on the ladder, their subjective appraisal of where they were in the hierarchy in relation to a variety of health endpoints, and I'll show you two, angina and general health, people who were lower on the ladder were more likely to have angina. But much of that was related to employment grade, so that, not surprisingly, the high grades were more likely to rate themselves higher on the ladder, the low grades lower. When we looked at general health, uh, there was, in fact, a persisting effect of where you rank yourself, uh, even after taking into account education, income, and employment grade. So it seems like there's something about the subjective appraisal of where you are in the hierarchy that might matter. And in trying to resolve this relative versus absolute, uh, I was drawn to the master, Amartya Sen, who says relative deprivation in the space of incomes. Uh, Amartya Sen talks about space the way we might talk about dimensions, so different ways of measuring inequality. He talks about the, the space. So relative deprivation in the space of incomes can yield absolute deprivation in the space of capabilities. 
And that is going to be my theme for tomorrow. Um, if you have friends uh, who weren't here today and ask you, should they come tomorrow, you could say, well, it couldn't be any worse. Or alternatively, you could say, tomorrow is when the answer is going to come. Thank you. Well, I want, I want to thank Sir Michael for a most provocative talk. I'm really eager afterward to ask him if American administrators are immortal. I rather doubt it. But uh, now we have some time for questions. Yeah. Uh, in terms of your products and your cohorts, uh, what you did certainly uh, the military might be... Excuse me, would you come up to the mic here, please? Uh, in reference to your to the models that you use and the cohort populations that you use, it occurred to me that a military might be a much tighter controlled situation where um, dress is similar, environment is similar, diet is similar, and all these kinds of things. Have you looked at military groups? There's there've been a couple of studies of military groups um, that show a very clear gradient in health, but. To my knowledge, I've not seen any de detailed investigations of the sort we've done with the civil servants. They've just reported their headline findings of a clear social gradient in health. But it'd be an interesting population to study. It relates to the question, um, Angus Deaton, who's professor of economics at Princeton, um, when we first met, he said, uh, I've been, this is very unusual for an economist, I've been reading what you've written. Um, and he said, at some points, you talk about relative position, position in the hierarchy. But at other points, you talk about people's living conditions. Now, um, for example, uh, and I'll mention this tomorrow, this report that we did for the government on um, recommending how they could reduce inequalities in health, uh, one of the things we talked about were the income and living conditions of the worst off, and we recommended that they get closer to the average. And Angus said uh, it's a truism of fiscal policy that it doesn't change rankings. If rankings are important, then changes in the fiscal regime won't do anything. Is it absolute or is it relative? So my point being that all societies have rankings. If it's rank per se, then that's why I was, if you like, starting to be a bit negative. But I'm not negative at all. I'm actually really rather optimistic, and that's really what I want to talk about tomorrow. If we understand why rank is important, and what it's correlated with, and it's the reason I finished with the Marcia Sen's quote, that um, relative, relative disadvantage in one space could translate into absolute difference in another space, then I think we can do something about it. So we'll always have ranks, that's my point. Uh, but what that rank means might change. Uh, it 
In a university setting, it, it seems important to observe that perhaps a change in mortality over time has been the great scientific medical advances over time. And if I look at your examples between Canada, the United States, and, and the UK, it, it seems that it's a, a matter of how well the advances in medicine are, are given to all people, irrespective of income. Well, yes, I'm not sure whether I'd say it was advances in medicine. Um, certainly advances in society, uh, like the examples I gave. Um, Robert Fogel's recent book, um, it's called The Fourth Great Awakening, and which to me was very interesting reading. He talks about the fact that in one sense egalitarianism triumphed in the United States in the century between about 1870 and 1970. That, for example, if you look at black-white differences in mortality and life expectancy, they got much closer together. And he said this was an egalitarian triumph. I think it's interesting that he stops at around 1970 because, in fact, they got further apart again in the period since 1970. But what he actually said... So it's been a great triumph, and there's absolutely no way I want to negate that. And that's why I showed that improvement. The worst-off people today are an order of magnitude better in terms of infant mortality than the best-off people 100 years ago. So there's no way to negate that. And I don't think it was just medical care. I think it was improved social conditions. What Bob Fogel then goes on to say is the new challenge for egalitarianism is egalitarianism of spiritual resources. And as I, um, in reading that, I liked everything he said except the title of spiritual. Uh, it makes me slightly uncomfortable. I guess it's too long since I've been in California. Um, but what he means is what I call psychosocial. Uh, what he means is the degree to which people can take control of their lives, self-esteem, social relationships, family relationships, and that's really going to be my theme for tomorrow. Yes? I was wondering, uh, I'm trying to get an idea of the magnitude of these effects. Is there any comparison of uh, you know, groups of people in the lowest class of those who uh, took very good care of themselves, they exercised, they didn't smoke, they didn't well, one way of answering that is we looked in the first Whitehall study um, at low-risk group, we, people who were never smokers, who had low plasma cholesterol levels and low blood pressure levels, and then asked what was the social gradient comparing the grades. And it was identical social gradient for heart disease. It was actually slightly bigger in this low-risk group in relative terms. Of course, absolutely, they were better off. Everybody was better off if they were never smokers and low cholesterol and low blood pressure. But the social differential was as big in this healthy subgroup. So it didn't equalize it. If you do all those good things, it doesn't abolish the social gradient. Yeah. As, as you probably know, the United States has a very high infant mortality rate compared to most European and other developed countries. The rate has decreased since the 1960s due supposedly mainly because of the 
creation of neonatal intensive care units and the survival rate of, of low birth weight premature infants. Do you know if there's any social gradient in terms of, of uh, low birth weight infants uh, or, or infant mortality? I don't know of any literature of that sort. I'm curious as to whether you know of any studies. Well, certainly in the UK, the data I know better. I mean, I showed you the social gradient in infant mortality. There's also a social gradient in low birth weight. And I'm pretty sure somebody will correct me. My memory of the US data is a rather interesting finding that there's a, a black-white difference in yes. birth weight, the higher prevalence of low birth weight in blacks. But for a given birth weight, the low birth weight black babies have a better survival than there are, the low birth There are weight. different distributions. Sorry? There are different distributions. Well, that's right. And so that there may be something else going on, that it may be that the causes of low birth weight are different in black and white babies. But even, but even if you look at the black... Um, infant mortality rates, or even if you look at the white infant mortality rates, it's much worse off than it is in other developed countries. But I was curious as to what you what you knew about that. Thank you. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know the U.S. infant mortality figures well enough, so your, your guess is better than mine. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Sir Michael, and I have two important requests for all of you. First of all, be sure to come back tomorrow and hear, and hear the, uh, the end of the story and the real, the real information. And second of all, in order to make these public lectures ever more public, I'd be grateful if you filled out that little sheet and handed it at the door so we know how to reach you better. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.